The following program is intended for mature audiences. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Recording Talk. Sounds boring. Oh my, yeah. With your hosts, James Seabrook. Okay, you were paying attention, but the idea is clear in my head, but translating it into English is not. That's brutal. I understand the hypocrisy. And Joey Roach. I don't even know what you do. I was just told you were the man. Some people would say I'm overconfident. That could be my ego talking, though. I'm trying to think of the right word. Oh. Yeah. Must be a tough word. Next subject. Uh, you're bored with this one? You don't hear us gassing on about it. Give you in the horn. I don't think it means what you think it means. By the way, you know, when you're when you're telling these little stories, you have a big mouth. Here's a good idea. What are you even talking about? Have a point. Why are you airing personal matters with complete strangers? It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. So you taking pictures of the dog or me? <laughs> I was trying to take pictures of the of us doing the podcast so that uh, I have something to throw up on Twitter or what, <laughs> whatnot, you know? Okay. That's what I was thinking anyway. <laughs> mm. So welcome everybody to today's episode of the show. We're going to try to be a little more structured because an article came out that I wanted to talk about and I'm going to drag Joey into the conversation. Um, hopefully it will last us the show. Um, before we dive into that though, sure. um, which we want to, we want to talk about, uh, recording studios dying or the idea of recording studios dying. Um, how was your week? Uh, it was okay. Had the, the, the L and M Christmas party on Sunday. That sounds like an appropriate time to have a Christmas party. Sure, it wasn't like Chinese Christmas? Chinese, no, Chinese New Year. <laughs> it's just the Chinese way Long Christmas. McQuaid works is like, yeah. we don't have Christmas party during Christmas because we're busy. Yeah, everybody's working. Nobody, like, if you had it at the end of a Sunday or whatever, like, nobody's going to go because they're all going to be like, I don't want to do anything because I've been talking for eight hours straight. Right. So, <laughs> we have it in January. And I set up the PA and back line that wasn't used. And it took me a day and a half work days to, really? to, to set up. I set it up by myself, mind you. And when we set up things, we test them as we go. So yeah. like that's, if I grab an amp, I have to plug it in, put a, a like place a little bit of guitar to make sure it works. Would you guys... Where'd you guys have this thing? Um, Mirage Banquet Hall. Okay. In the Bonnie Dunish area. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Cool. That was fun you and say you, disheartening. You guys didn't to, use the PA? Uh, the PA was used. Okay, but, but the back line The wasn't. back line wasn't. No and one the back line was play? major. Well, like, a couple people did play, but, uh-huh. like, we maybe got, like, a half hour of performance out of probably $40,000 worth of uh, backline. <laughs> awesome. Um, what, what made the whole thing disappointing? Uh, well, I don't know. I'd have rather it been like previous years. I enjoyed the previous years, but I understand that not everybody enjoyed them. We, we used to do this thing where people would be randomly selected to be in a band and you perform. Yeah, I remember you got rid of that, that this year to be open jam. So like you can just come up and jam, but no nobody really wanted to do that because everybody's of the mind that they would rather rehearse, especially in front of 
other very capable players was like we don't want to look like idiots yeah in front of our cohorts how do you feel about jamming and i use that very loosely and in quotations but how do you feel about the general idea of jamming uh i'm mixed about it because when i'm jamming with people who are who've never taken music seriously they they think i'm doing incredibly well because i could just see what they're doing and i catch on mm-hmm. but like that's expected in an actual professional environment and like reality is in a more professional environment uh, the style of playing i would do for those people who are not used to it is nowhere near acceptable caliber right. like every folk fest or whatever i we'd have a jam at uh the the in-laws place i guess i don't know if they're oh, in-laws it, yet not technically but we understand what you mean yeah um but uh they have a jam people there they're they've never really pursued music professionally mm-hmm. and so the fact that i i'm able to play root notes to whatever chords are going on <laughs> or like last year uh like I'd be playing the root notes while like telling Mary, this is a B, this is a G, this is an A. (laughs) (laughs) So I used to, um, uh, throughout the two thousands, I was always really against the idea of a jam. It just didn't really interest me. Um, and I used to get, I used to get buddies all the time where I'd meet new people that, that they, play guitar um and they say hey we should get together and jam and it never interested me because i wanted to spend my time musically writing or co-writing collaborating um rehearsing oh yeah right and see and that's why i'm of two minds i enjoy the praise that i get from being around those people who think i'm better just because i play root notes I mean, who doesn't like being told that they're good at something, despite the fact that, you know, like, this is not that great what I was doing. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, on the other hand, like, I want to play more Mm -hmm. actual fun stuff, stuff that actually requires me moving around on on the, because I I generally just play bass nowadays, but uh, something that requires me to actually do something that's fun. Yeah. I enjoy playing those kind of bass lines more, but that kind of jam requires me to be a lot quicker at thinking (laughs) and I'm not a very good improv player. No, no, I I can't just hear what's going on and then figure out what key it's in, especially with the way I write. I tend to write very chromatically Mm, and that doesn't work in jams. That's true. So yeah um shit i wish i paid more attention to um to the person that gave this quote but um i was listening to a podcast uh and i don't even remember what podcast so it's not super helpful in telling this story but i um have you heard you you've heard hacks as musicians that somewhere along the way have said, uh, you know, it's jazz if you make a mistake, you know, or, or, uh, 
if you if you make a mistake, make it again, and it's jazz. You know, I've yeah, I've heard that right? excuse for terrible playing. Yes, right. So I heard um, someone tell the story of the original, like the original dude that made that statement, and what the context was around the actual statement. Probably an insane player. Who... Well, and and and, and what um, what the context was around that statement, and and this really this really struck home with me was talking about talking about making an intentional mistake but the way he was defining mistake was a note that isn't in the melodic structure or isn't in the key that you choose to play intentionally out of key or you choose to play uh, intentionally so because he used the word mistake instead of accidental right it, it took on this awful life of its own yeah um but that that really that really sang home with me i got a dig that up this is why you should learn the terminology of whatever profession you're in and use it people don't do that though and then that way you don't have things like people mistaking multi-tracks as stems Mm, i know right um i found an interesting studio one has a um has a feature in it called export stems um, that and it just prints out I, buses. I, ha- I haven't, I haven't tested it yet. I um, hope it just prints out the buses. I hope so too. Yeah. Um, but it's one of those, the moment I saw it, my first thought was, did these guys fucking get it wrong too? Cause that's really going to piss me off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should test it out. I've been, I, 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 I have, I have, I've, I've been working on, on learning studio one because I have it and I fucking hate it. It's it, like so many things but about it. I just like, kind of but, like Cubase. <laughs> yeah it's made by the of. same guys who designed uh, cubase Q- 6 up to cubase 4 four four yeah i thought was, some of the guys no, that was up, did up five and six were also a part of that team they might have joined the team later but the original the original personas team that designed studio one the first edition was the team that that worked on cubase 4 okay well yeah. that's still a decent version that wasn't I, I opened 3D loopsified. <laughs> I opened the studio with that version. Uh, I had, in fact, I had this, I had Cubase 4. I skipped 5 entirely. I had Cubase 4 um, right up until, I don't know, 2012 or something like that before I upgraded to 6. Something, okay. Something like that. Yeah. So you weren't even an early adapter of 6 when it came out. You waited a little bit. I might have. I, I probably did wait a little bit, and it, and it was probably it was probably some <coughs> some um, some YouTube video promoting it that I saw a funky feature, and I was like, ah, I'll spring for the two hundred dollars for the upgrade. Yeah. And then I upgraded to seven, which I hate, but I can't move backwards because there's a couple things in there that I have started to rely on. Seven, ha- yeah, did add some features, but they also took away and made an ugly UI. Mm-hmm. And I upgraded to eight. Eight, I practically skipped because there was nothing in there that... There's one thing in there. Um, sorry, two. There, there's two things in eight that I like, but it doesn't. it's not compatible with my operating system downstairs, so it's, it's also really glitchy. What did they introduce in eight that was... Two things. Um, they updated the, um, the mix engine, the bounce the offline okay. bounce engine that would and, be and, nice and and there was a 
it was specifically a glitch that that seven would happen that um if the wrong sequence of events leading up to a to a consolidate track um happened if the that wrong sequence of events then that consolidate track would be especially if you had oh right it was it was it was all centered around time stretching in the track um it would it would actually warp it would, it would actually export those samples or consolidate those track and extend the track so it was like it was like it would slow down the track by you know a, an eighth of a beat an eighth of a beat that's not that doesn't make sense um so the sample rate would basically change the, the, and the, it would kind of stretch it out right and 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 that didn't happen in eight um, they'd fix that problem for eight. The other cool thing that they they introduced in eight was they introduced an SVT um, uh, Ampeg cabinet clone into their VST amps. That's cool. Which I've heard a lot of good things Considering about. Considering that the modern real thing is a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. It, I've heard good things about this one anyway, so. Well, I'm just talking about like SVT mm-hmm. heads. They're garbage. Really? Yeah. The components in them break all the time. That doesn't They're sound right. always coming in to get repaired. Are they still are they We still have made a in fleet in my store of like 10, and it's we have that many because they break so often. That's nuts, man. They're not made in the U.S. anymore. Okay. They're well, made in oh, China. Oh, okay. See, I thought they were made in, in the U.K., but they were made in the U.S.? Uh, yeah. Okay. The ones that were made in the U.S., I've been told, were built like tanks. Like uh, <laughs> that would my, make sense. My, my tech at my location has cool. actually seen a, a vintage made in USA one, and he mm. said, "Like there are like the chassis is like metal, and it weighs even more than yeah. the modern equivalent." Um, who owns uh, who owns Ampeg? I'm not sure. Hmm. Have to look that up. Because it doesn't, it, it wouldn't make sense for them to move the entire brand's catalog to be made in China. You'd think there'd be, you'd think there'd be a significant demand for them to have some U.S. made or U.K. made or, um, or something. I imagine the components that they are getting for their new, newer SVT classic heads, though, is significant from the American-made right. stuff. So that makes some sense. Yeah. Okay, so I feel like we've caught up. Sure. We're 15 minutes in now. Let's dive into this thing. Okay. Okay, so <clears throat> this was an article that I got um, through the ProSound Network uh, that was rebuking an article that came out from 24-7 Wall Street. Um, and I want to read to you it's not very long, but 24 seven wall street released a, what do they call this? Um, America's 24 dying industries is the name of the article. Um, and it ranges everything from, um, office supply. Uh, I'll just go over the, the ones that are ranked lower than studios. Um, and then we'll, we'll stop at the studios and, and we'll talk about it. Sure. So, at number 24, office supplies uh, in general has seen has seen a huge reduction. I can see that. 
Number 23 is stationary product manufacturing. Isn't that the same thing? No, but not, not, not really office supplies. That's like, that's like cards and, and, and that kind of thing. I don't know. Business cards are probably always going to be a... Not business cards, but, um, but like Hallmark cards. Oh. Right. Like, like birthday cards and that kind of stuff. Well, I always found those things kind of weird that people bought. Naturally. um, Now they're comparing their Wall Street is this 24 seven Wall Street article is comparing 2007. So pre-recession to 2016 numbers. So um, at number 22, bookstores and news dealers. I mean, imagine like news. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Totally does. Right. To an extent, but they're all already adjusting to that. So they're not mm. dying. They, they won't even, die. Even Amazon just opened up a brick and mortar bookstore. I just heard on the news this morning. Amazon has a grocery store. I know. Have you seen, have you seen their grocery store? I heard Seattle? about it and it creeps me the hell out. <laughs> I'm not creeped out at all, but I think it's cool. Well, I, I just, I don't understand the technology that allows you to go into this grocery store, walk out and they bill you for what you took. It's RF, RF frequencies. So, um, so you, you clock it, you, you, you clock in with your phone so that they, they know that you're in the store and they can track your phone. Mm-hmm. Right. Then every item, this is the part that I don't think they're telling any people, but every item in the store has a, has a unique RF identifier. Um, and so that as you walk through their cashier thing, or maybe even as you pick it up off the shelf, um, that item is logged into your cart. And as you leave the store, that cart is checked out just like the online system. Right. Hmm. Um, and so they claim that there's, that there's like a, a multitude of cameras everywhere to supervise what's going on and to do like facial recognition and product recognition and all that kind of stuff. But the RF thing is just a far easier, far easier system to make that work. Probably an well, easier system to, it's not going to take long but, for someone super smart to be like, okay, I'm going to get a bunch of free groceries. Yeah. But, but that's the thing is, is they're not doing this for the groceries. They're doing this for the data, data mining. Oh, I know what, right? why they're doing so, it. That's why I'm creeped so out with people it. Could, people could walk away with oh, tons of free groceries. They're still going to get they're still going to get the data they're looking for, and they're not going to lose all that money via theft. Know. A super smart guy would probably be able to block. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Is that's not going to happen enough to impact well, no, margins. No, right? it's just the smart people who are very protective of that stuff. That 21 will. on the list. Securities yep. and commodity exchanges. I don't actually know what these are. I, I, I know it's a financial thing. Security and um, commodity. Well, buying and selling of stocks, stock options, bonds, blah, blah, blah. Really? That's, that's number 21. That's, that is not a dying industry. <laughs> so Unless they're talking about like so what brokers and stuff. What, they've, what they say is there's been an employment change of negative 43% since 2007. Okay. And the, and, and the wage growth has... <laughs> So this is probably a, a relative thing, but the wage growth from 2007 to 2016 is 7.1%. Not a lot, hmm. but not terrible. That's either. just below inflation. Over the 10 years? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's still below inflation. You're right. The average 1% so, per year. So I, I would say, like, yeah, yeah. Inflation just, is higher than 1% though, isn't it? Uh, you know what? Let's, let's they aim for two percent, but it usually averages at one point something. Gotcha. Okay, so at ranking at number twenty, 
<clears throat> ranking at number 20 is sound recording studios. That's how they classify it. Now that's, that's actually the, the governmental, um, classification for, um, in, at least in Canada, that's the governmental classification category okay. for, for the, the industry that we're in. And I'll, I'll read this, then I'll read bits and pieces from the other article and, and we can, we can talk about them. Sure. Um, so it's, it's a really short thing. Um, they say there's been an, an employment change of again, minus 43%. Yeah. Um, since 2007 to 2016. What they won't tell you is probably majority of those uh, employees lost were never paid in the first place. Actually, the bigger statistic is is most of the staff that is no longer staff have gone freelance, and that's the big change that because is. self-employed individuals don't qualify under this this statistical heading. Yeah, yeah. Right. There's that too. That's that's something that the the Pro Sound Network article discusses too. But um, so, and and remember, these are all just American yeah. statistics, right? So, mm -hmm. employment total of four thousand six hundred and fifty-seven people in the U.S. That's pretty small. But again, that doesn't that doesn't and that doesn't. That's take pretty into much account just accounting the professional. Like I work employed. in this exactly. studio. Well, the people that are employed by a company that is some sort of sound recording studio, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's more like the movie and wage the big time guys. Wage growth from 2007 to 2016, uh, growth of 10.5%. So it's not bad. There's growth. There's growth, yeah. And that's that's over 10 years, that's reasonable. <laughs> um, average annual wage in the States, and this is lower than the statistic I found which was probably from 2007-ish. Average annual wage, 52600 Still makes sense. Yep. Yep. I totally, I totally buy all that. So um, <clears throat> music production, this is from their article. Music production practices have, in, have evolved with technology. Jesus, what the hell? That's some, okay. Evolved with technology. Okay. Okay. They just bad typing. Okay. Musical. <laughs> Jesus. If I could cut this out, I would. <laughs> <laughs> we don't edit this <clears throat> podcast anymore. I know. Musical production practices have evolved with technology since the invention of sound recording in the 19th century. In recent years, advances in sound mixing technology have democratized the production and distribution of music, reducing the need for professional recording studios for many artists. Sound City Studios, a recording studio in Los Angeles, notable for its history with major musical acts such as Tom Petty, Johnny Cash, and Nirvana, closed its commercial operations in 2011. In total, the number of recording studios in the United States fell from 1,700 in 2007 to 1,438 in 2016, over a 15% drop. Um... Employment in the industry fell 43% over the same period, one of the largest declines of any sector. <clears throat> so that's their entire entry into that. Well, the, yeah, they're definitely not taking into account of a lot of things well, in that industry. And, and, and one, one thing that the Pro Sound Network article um, mentioned a couple times is they just couldn't verify those particular statistics because they uh, obviously the Wall Street um, article doesn't cite its sources why wouldn't it cite its sources aren't they journalists 
Oh, see, that's the thing is this 24, 24, seven wall street. This is, I think this is more of a, yeah, but the people who read like that kind of thing are like financial dudes and they want actual statistics. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think, I don't think those guys or girls are looking at an article like this. Probably not. Right. Cause this is, this is, this is a glorified Dave Letterman's top 10 thing. Does anybody listening know what Dave Letterman is? I know who Dave Letterman is. <laughs> I watched his new his, his interview with Obama uh, that came out on Netflix. That was really good. I enjoyed that. I okay. saw a picture of him and it was just like, <clears throat> wow, he looks different with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> Obama made fun of it. It was pretty funny. Okay. So so I wanted to now that now that we've kind of set that up, I've wanted to to discuss this idea that a lot of people have and a lot of a lot of people new to the industry or um, people outside the industry, they think they know what's really going on. But I just kind of want to talk about what's actually going on. Um, well, so I don't know. The, uh, reading like just from that little blurb there, what that sounds like is they have just this very narrow perspective of the industry mm-hmm. and they're looking strictly at the numbers of that very narrow thing. They're not actually taking an account of what's going on in the industry. And well, then they're making this claim that it's a dying industry, but reality is, is it's an evolving industry. It's adapting like it always does. Right. Music um, is a thing that will always exist because people will always be making music. You mean the music industry? Yeah. Yeah, but... <clears throat> you're absolutely right. Like that, that's never going away. And that's one of the reasons the pro sound network article argues that studios are are probably doing better than ever as a, as an industry, because um, sales last year of music for 2017 eclipsed $4 billion, which is something the, the second highest year that they've ever had in history. Right. And that's and that's just that's just, just the, in the states, aren't right? Getting I much of that pie, supposedly. I don't know. It could just—I don't know. It could be just the st- sheer amount of people who are professional musicians these days, though, could also be eating into that pie. I had a conversation with my client last night about about that very thing. The idea that th- there's more money being made now as an industry. But yeah. There's also more people taking their cut, right? And I don't, yeah. I don't mean like record companies, but like, well, the the, it, the barrier of entry is so much lower than it used to be. That's right. And there is no gatekeepers anymore. You, like anyone off the street can get their music on Spotify. Well, and and I look at the I look at the consideration that that you or I could could make a. 60, 70, 100, $200,000 career out of our music, original music, working mm-hmm. full time at it, um, which is peanuts in the music industry. But we, we can do that. And there are, there are so many more, let's say, lower tier artists that are having that kind of original music career that never, never have the, the success of an Ed Sheeran or, or a Drake or whatever. Um, but still take a chunk of that pie. Yeah. And and like you say, because the, there's because the, a lot of people in the music industry right now that 
are not getting a lot of royalties because they don't understand how to build up their career to get a mass of royalties that would actually amount to yeah maybe not having to have a day job i had an interesting email in here um if i was a lot better at marketing that's probably what i would do (laughs) yeah um i know where my strengths lie and marketing is not one of them all right here it is okay um Okay, so I've been subscribing to these newsletters. Right. And one of the newsletters that I found is called uh, Celebrity Access. And it has, it lists the top 10 tracks streamed on um, Spotify the week before, I think. I think, it is, is it weekly? Mm. I think it's weekly. Um, I don't recognize half of them. Well, a lot of the super popular stuff going on right now is uh, very forgettable because mm-hmm. it's all the same thing. It's all um, it's all um, bubblegum disposable, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, um, you know that kid who has perfect pitch? No. he's on, He has like a bunch of YouTube videos where his dad like will play complicated weirdo chord that has all sorts of dissonance going on and this kid can like name every note in that chord oh wow and he just knows it like it's off the top of his head so he has like perfect pitch yeah. um but this guy is like a producer engineer and he has some so he has some pretty cool credits and stuff like that but he has a blog where, and like a or a, a vlog or something i don't know he has youtube videos where he talks about music and stuff and one of his things is that uh um, if you're not in the pop or hip hop genres, you're not in the world scope of the marketplace. You're just in right. a, your niche market, right? Because those are the two genres that are like, no matter where you go, people are listening to that style of music. And that's fine. And uh, he thinks that's going to die, that those genres will die <laughs> within the next 15 years. Uh, oh, 15 years is hard to predict. I mean, no one saw hair metal coming in. Yeah, but he, he's going off of like the whole like... And no one saw grunge. The the formula stuff. And he thinks that audiences are getting to that tipping point where they start to not care about it. Mm-hmm. And he's citing like, here's these four chords. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows the four chord stupid thing. Yeah. Um, and then he was comparing it to like the rock uh, guys. Like he said, Beatles, they had 24 hits. How many of them used the four chords? One song. Hmm. Uh, Which one? Do you uh, remember? No, that's okay. I think it's Hey Jude used it. Was that, are you talking about the root four, five, um, uh, six? Root four, five, six? Okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's in that order, but it, it is those chords. Yeah, um, um, but he also talks about like variations of those four chords and stuff. And he talks about how like um, you look at what's going on in the top ten, and it is dominated by that chord uh, progression. I be surprised, yeah. Uh, I mean, like looking at looking at this. Um, if I had to guess, just based on these people' pictures. 
there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine of these are hip hop and one. Okay. No, two of them could go either way. But it um, is hip hop pop. Hip hop pop, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 And um, probably I would be willing to bet that 40 to 60% of those songs, it has that, uh, that progression in it. Yeah. That makes sense. I think that'd be a safe bet to make. Um, so let's tie this back. But, let's tie this back to the yeah. recording studio thing. Um, if, and this is, this is a basis for a lot of people's arguments. <clears throat> if all of this music that's topping the charts is made at made in small studios or it's a producer in his private studio um or there's it's it's all computer instruments and they don't need a well, live recording room look what, at what a lot of the big names are doing they're all doing like the i am no longer renting a studio space to mix i'm mixing at home and mm-hmm. it won't be covered under that industry it might like be, Dave but... Pensato has his own private mixing room in his house. Right. Let's let's not even go into the into the mixers yet. Let's let's stay with the album production. Yeah. Producers, recording engineers. Um, let's stay in let's stay well, in that realm. Even that realm, like a lot of those people are converting their garage into a recording facility. So that's what I so that's what I mean is is if Let's say let's say eighty percent of the top charting stuff is computer based instruments that have no need of a recording space mm-hmm. other than maybe the for vocals. What do you need a studio for? What, doesn't it make sense that studios die off? Well, th- there's always going to be the music that needs studios, and uh, like that's part of the the guy who. I was talking about earlier who was saying that that music's probably going to die off and we're going to see a re- is this Is this still the Bono thing? No. no. All right. it, it's related, I guess, because he does share very similar opinion. Hmm. Um, who is this dude? I don't remember his yeah. name. I, I would know who it was if I saw a picture of him. Right. Um, That's not helpful on radio. No. <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Uh, he thinks that there is going to be a resurgence of people playing instruments and stuff mm-hmm. and that we are going or the, that we are at the verge of getting to the point where the audiences are not no longer wanting to hear computerized music. They will want to hear the human I- experience of playing music and stuff. So let me, let me throw a stat at you. Um, uh, what did um it was from the Bobby Osinski year end podcast. He was saying that hip hop, pop and R and B, like grand total, they made up they were dominating worldwide sales, but oh, yeah. hip hop was at twenty one percent, something like that, right? That's pretty high considering how many genres of music there is. Right. Um and and rock and roll, which used to be close to the top, was sitting at six percent. Yeah. Worldwide, and roll worldwide sales, but now, now you <clears throat> factor that. Let's let's say hip. Let's let's just make the assumption that if hip hop is number one mm-hmm. and all the other pop genres are less, 
let's make the assumption that hip hop and pop computer-based music in general totals up to less than 50% of all music that's made. I think you'd be safe to say it's about 40. Fair enough. So 40%. So that leaves 60% of all the music that's made and released out into the world that still needs real people to play the instruments and a place to record those real instruments. Yeah. Right? So there is a niche market for it. So let's let's then break that down. Um, if, if the U.S., the, I, I think it was, according to the article, the Recording Industry Association of America mm-hmm. were the ones that stated that 2017, they made, uh, the industry made $4 billion in the U.S. alone. Okay. Right? So if 40% of that didn't really need a studio, that still leaves 60% of $4 billion. Now that's total sales, right? But yeah. that that much money is generated from music that was recorded in a real space. Be $2.4 billion. There you go. So that's, that's a $2.4 billion industry that is based off of some sort of real recording of instruments. Now, is it fair to assume that a third is not recorded in a professional studio? Maybe. You know, guys at home, like like Chad Van Galen's first record was recorded in his bedroom and and um, Chris Cornell r- recorded one of his solo records in his kitchen. You know? A um, large and- portion of music being created is probably in those kind of places, but I also don't think that they are amounting to a large sum of what the industry is bringing in. Well, and, and, and I guess what I was thinking is, is a third or less is likely to have come from, is likely to have come from a non-traditional studio, mm-hmm. right? Which leaves, which still leaves you 1.6 or more billion dollars of music that's being sold that needs a studio space to, to make happen. Right. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Now I guess, um, like 4 billion, that's more than the industry has seen ever. I think, you know what they had, they had that actually, that actual stat here. I'm going to, I'm going to look this up. Really Even correctly. in the like late nineties when they were charging $20, a so sorry, a record. That's someone is calling me from Nova Scotia. Um, when they were ta- charging, to, uh, absolutely. Um, in the late nineties, the, I mean, things just, things were selling a lot. Here we go. According to the RIAA, the music biz raked in $4 billion. The, oh, here you go. $4 billion. The first six months of 2017 more up more than 70, 17% from the previous year. So they probably made closer to $8 billion. Yeah total so our numbers are even higher than that like we can assume like three billion dollars needs a studio right which that's plenty of money to right be viable and so the trend that i the trend that i actually see is not that studios are going away it's that larger facilities Larger facilities are going away. Are are the ones that are going away, but not all of them. No, it's just it's uh, just reducing well. because 
some some big projects like like um well anything that needs a large orchestra is going to need a large facility yeah what well, michael buble's christmas album from 2011 or 2013 or something like that um he took over one of the biggest rooms in new york and then took over the studio beside it they had one of those huge walls that you could remove because he wanted the entire the entire 80 person um band <laughs> right to play live and the whole thing was going to happen live backup singers him um regular band the orchestra the horn section the, yeah and if that's what you want to do that's the kind of place you need and and, and there's going to be less of those but they're still going to exist because movies will still need them and movies is a huge industry yeah yeah for real orchestras and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah. So, so what I see is the biggest of the big studios. Those are the ones that are being thinned out. Yeah. The big rock and roll studios are, but it's, uh, they're not dying out. They are, uh, what, what would be the word? They're just downsizing is probably how I would word it. I was going to, I was going to say coming back to balance, right? Like there's, there's this much need, but there's this many studios. So some of them are going to die so that the need meets the Well, yeah, resources. sure. The, the, plenty of those studios are going to die because they didn't manage their their studio properly and yeah. can no longer afford to be in business. I heard, according to this article, even, um, even Sound City Studios opened up again Yeah, last year. Yeah. Uh, somebody took it over and mm-hmm. did some work and cleaned it up. <laughs> which i mean yeah i i would totally do that because right. that didn't sound like a place that people today would want to be a part of yeah yeah fair enough <laughs> people don't want to smell cigarettes and urine <laughs> gross i've yeah i've heard stories that like people like urinated in the hallways and stuff like that there Too much i don't know if it's an alcohol true or not but i could believe it from watching that documentary on sound city so all of this all of this money that um that used to come from big budgets from big record companies and go to big studios is now being pared down um smaller record companies smaller budgets record companies are moving their money from like investing in recording studios to investing into uh streaming softwares and stuff like that right well because i mean they know that's, that's where, where the money, the money is. is and right. they know that th- th- the cost of recording is lower than it used to be and, well it, they're taking advantage of that for sure if yeah and 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 as far as a studio goes it's the mid-sized studio and the small the small uh, the small and studios mid-sized studios are the ones are, that are doing benefiting from yeah. The larger ones are the ones. That's where you're seeing the actual growth, right? Yeah. Yeah. The small to mid-sized studio is doing well, doing plenty fine. Mm -hmm. And so long as the the people in charge of those studios don't mismanage it to the point where they cannot compete with the ever-lowering prices, um, then they're fine. Um, But the large studios, they've inflated to the point where they had to charge a thousand two thousand dollars a day and 
with less need for a studio of that size yeah and people not having that kind of money to spend on recording <laughs> yeah it, it just makes sense that that type of studio is going to close down doors maybe the people that were in charge of that are closing down and taking whatever money they have because i would hope that these people were smart enough to save some money they'll build a smaller studio hmm? that they're more able to maintain maintain yeah yeah instead of a very inflated studio that is you know you have to rely on those customers that have lots of her clients that have lots of money to hire even when you see a lot of red flags around the client like uh yeah <laughs> yeah um where were we here uh <clears throat> so So I know we've covered this topic before, but it, it's it's valid in this conversation to to um, to touch on it again. How do you how do you feel the impact of home recording setups and like cheap small um, setups? How do you see that impacting the recording studio world? And I don't mean the music industry itself, but but how do you see that out impacting this, the world of, of recording studios? I don't see it affecting it that much anymore, anyway, any more than it already has. Uh, so uh, let, let's just let's touch on that for a sec. How has it infect? How has it um, impacted? Well, it, it's a huge reason why studio prices have gone down is because home recording is being more and more viable option because interfaces today like 200 or like the cheapest interface is like 150 120 bucks i just bought a mobile interface off of off of ebay that was selling for 90 dollars american four channels great reviews yes see see, so like 100 bucks you can have one or two channel interface uh and then for like another hundred bucks you can have a microphone mm-hmm. and you can record things at home right mind you if you don't have the experience to get the best out of those things it's not going to be very pleasing sounding but you know someone who does have experience in that kind of stuff you know like the you and me type of thing like we have experience like we would invest I don't know if if you were to build a, a room in your house and, and you had to build it from scratch, you'd spend maybe what two thousand dollars on equipment. Whereas, like I don't know, say twenty years ago, how much would you have had to spend to make that place? <laughs> yeah, right. So, like it, it's just it is the home recording thing has just changed the industry so that you know the professionals are actually looking at doing the home option because it used to be doing the home option was on par in terms of cost as doing the, the studio thing. So it didn't make as much sense to do your own home thing when you could just rent a studio. But nowadays it's probably making more sense to keep it at home, keeping your costs down. Right. So that like the professionals are all moving away from studios or 
traditional studios. Yeah. As a result, because it's cheaper. All right. So, like, it has affected the recording industry, but it has affected probably for for good, because more music can be made for cheaper. Does it almost? Um, does it keep the more expensive options in check? You know, because I mean, certainly, like, like you mentioned, uh, by the end of the nineties. Um, costs of studios were so outrageously high and and cost of equipment was incredibly high and and and, well, and, and you you had to have a lot of money to, to to get into a studio yeah just to just to record a demo well right the thing is is the types of clientele that are doing that has changed uh, generally like anyone who's willing to spend that kind of money on recording they're generally trying to pump their money in a a person with experience to do that work for them. Right. So I don't know. I think there's a good balance there where it's the people who want to hire the people who know what they're doing are going to spend the extra money for it. So let me ask you, let me ask you this. Let's, let's turn our eyes a little towards the future. Um, How is the affordability of a home studio going to help the sustainability of professional studios Hmm. i don't know but like i I, professional studios are going to be spending less money on equipment so that'll help them out because that is what's the current trend in 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 terms of equipment is people want good equipment for less and so a lot of people are cloning your u87s and having them like a quarter of the price so yeah um have you guys gotten a a warm 87 yeah in have you tested it out at all uh no but i've heard that it's okay i've heard the same just okay um okay so I, I do have a couple of theories or at least one central theory on how the the home recording and the cheapness of recording um, is benefiting studios. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you and I have talked about this before. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's even been on the podcast before, but um, I feel as though, because it's easier for people to get into recording, easier for a musician to say, well, I know how to put a microphone in front of a guitar cabinet. I'm going to do this on my own. Well, it's not hard. No, right? Uh, I feel like them going through the process of the technical stuff um, educates them on what it is to be a professional in that. Well, it educates them on just how much skilled someone who does it professionally has how much work it takes and because someone who who knows what they're doing who has recorded like a lot of stuff they're Mm. gonna put a microphone there and it's going to be probably pretty close to what the end result yeah is going to be they might have to adjust a little bit whereas the guy who this is the first time he's ever done it he's just gonna throw the microphone in front and then he's maybe not going to be happy with his results and not understand that it could be as simple as just moving the microphone a half an inch away. And I, and, and see, I, I feel, I find that 
those home recording guys or those guys that have done it on their own, they end up being better clients when they end up going to a studio because they don't want to spend the extra time to Well, they see the value the skills, in right? the, the skill set that exactly the which hiring is which which makes it more of a more of a collaborative effort makes it more of a team effort even if even if the engineer isn't collaborating musically there's that that teamwork aspect that is heightened in the studio well, the client is getting out of the engineer's way that's right that's right they understand why why spending six hours on a drum setup is a valuable thing um, or, or taking extra time to make sure the guitar tone is just right, or, or willing to test out four different microphones for the lead singer, mm -hmm. you know, to find that right match. Yeah. These are all things that, these are all things that I feel make, or that I feel studios benefit from because of the home recording revolution. Um, and I think it's, I think it's such a, such a good time to be in a studio mm -hmm. in spite of this article's claim that the industry is dying. Yeah. The only thing I kind of dislike about the whole home studio revolution is all the, <laughs> the kids who call themselves audio engineers, but don't actually understand what that title means. That's fair. There are too many people who call themselves an audio engineer or a music producer and don't actually understand what it is you're supposed to do with those things. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're ever going to get away from that. But yeah, you know, I'm, I'm sure that was a problem before <laughs> I was even in the industry, but like I've throughout the years of doing it, I've, I've encountered some band members that called themselves an audio engineer and they had recorded everybody's multi-tracks and then I listened to things and go like, you're an audio engineer and you don't understand basic gain staging. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, I was working with uh, Mr. What does he call him? I don't know. I don't know what his stage name is. Um, client I've been working with a long time, Davis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was getting really excited about the track we were working on. And of course it was, it, it, it it's hip hop. And, and so it was programmed drums and programmed, um, production. Yeah. Uh, but he, he started asking questions about drummers because he, he loves drums and he loves watching real drummers play. And, and, um, and then I made a comment about, about how, really a lot of amateur musicians can't actually keep a beat or drummers specifically. They can't actually keep a beat. Mm -hmm. It's a push and pull constantly. Um, and he asked a really, a really pertinent question. It says, can you even, can, can they even call themselves a drummer? <laughs> <laughs> well, they do. And, and right. And, and, and they, that's the thing. they use Dave Grohl to justify their inability to play to a click, or inability to just keep a basic time. Like, yeah. I can understand. I can understand a drummer who struggles with keeping tempo as he goes through a fill, right? Uh, well, fills are pretty complicated things. They, they can, can be, yeah. And 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 especially when you're excited, you know. Well, but it's I it's, don't know. My experience with playing drums, playing fills is one of my least favorite thing because I know I'm going to be off by the time I'm done, even if it's only a quarter note fill. 
I'm going to be off because <laughs> I put so much focus on what I'm doing that I lose focus on yeah. on the, the groove of the song. And so then I might be like a 16th or I don't know, let's say worst case scenario, I'm an eighth note off. It's a noticeable I'm off. Yeah. And yet, and yet those kind of players still call themselves drummers. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't call myself a drummer. I, <laughs> I don't even call myself a guitarist anymore. I just say I play bass because I do play bass better than most people I've I just tell people had to I, deal with. I just tell people I play a variety of instruments very poorly. Hmm. I don't say I play bass very well. I <laughs> play it better than... Well, people, I play it better than a lot of people who play bass in a band because they were our guitarists that... Uh, just, oh, I'll play bass because you already have two guitar players. Yeah. yeah. It, but doesn't actually understand what it means to play bass. Mm-hmm. Which, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I get it. But actually listen to like some bass players. They're great the bass isn't about playing root notes and keeping tempo it's there's more to it another interesting question that davis asked last night spurred by this thing is is there and and love to get your opinion on this is there an instrument that is actually harder to learn than another instrument thurman (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) that instrument is like impossible to play um, don't you guys have one at, at uh, we occasionally have them hmm. uh, we did at one point have a self-tuning Thurman that would like automatically Adjust put itself pitch, yeah. uh, in key yeah. which I think just defeats the purpose of a Thurman because like yeah. the whole point is to get those swells it's auto-tune for the Thurman <laughs> it is <laughs> yeah but th- um, they're just annoying things to play because every time you play it, you have to tune it. You have to, like, you don't just mean by like your hand positioning, but you mean you actually have to tune. The well, box. like you have to calibrate it and like, you have to figure out where the notes are again, oh, yeah. because depending on even the room you're in, like a 20 by 20 foot room or a 10 by 10 foot room, the humidity in that room, ah. like they're everything going on around you affects the Thurman. And if you're playing one live, like it's going to detune. <laughs> okay. As a new wave of stage smoke rolls across <laughs> it, that would affect it. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so it, it's an annoying instrument because that ukulele is also annoying, but only cause it never stays in tune. Hmm. Play one note and it's just, I had a, um, an alt country girl in here, I don't know, four years ago now almost. And um, we did one, we did we did this one song, her and a ukulele live with um, one of the Kiwis we're talking into, uh, the one I'm talking into right now um, in front of her. And, you know, we just moved the mic around until we got a good balance of her and the, and the ukulele. And it was such an amazing performance. And about, it was a six minute song too. Um, but the long story she was trying to tell fucking went out of tune at the three minute mark yeah but the performance was amazing that we knew we wouldn't get it again so we ended up not being able to use it it's sad very sad <laughs> but I guess we gotta go thanks so much for in- indulging in my dead studio conversation sure and we'll see you all next week see follow ya. our hosts on twitter 
at Two Bodies of Water. You got that mic in a comfortable spot yet? I'm still working on it. At Joey R. Engineer. I can't even talk. I don't remember what my point was. This is a boring podcast. Um, I realize at the end of this, we didn't introduce ourselves. On to the internet you go. Go switch off.